This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. Dating back to the racist Jim Crow era, felony disenfranchisement laws, or laws that take away a person's right to vote, were created in the states after the Civil War as part of an intentional effort to weaken the political power of Black people who had been enslaved. That time was also when the abominable effort began to incarcerate Black people who were newly freed. The ACLU of Maryland created a documentary called Free the Vote that explores this history in Maryland and how it impacts us today. Shamefully, Maryland leads the nation with the highest percentage of racial disparities in our prisons. Today, Black Marylanders make up 69% of the people in prison, but make up only 31% of the overall state population. According to a report by the Sentencing Project, in 2020, over 18,000 people in Maryland could not vote due to incarceration for a felony. 72% of those people are Black. But it doesn't have to be this way. And there's a growing movement to make sure all citizens who are incarcerated have access to the ballot. Because in a democracy, voting is a right that should never be taken away. To talk more about this, we will replay a conversation we had at the end of 2020 about freeing the votes, featuring Faraji Muhammad, host of For the Culture on WEAA 88.9 FM. Kiana Johnson, Executive Director of Life After Release. Dr. Pippa Holloway, author of Living in Infamy, Felon Disenfranchisement and the History of American Citizenship. Chris Winslow, serial social entrepreneur, storyteller, artist, social justice advocate, and the author of The Master Plan, and me, Amber Taylor, the producer of Free the Votes and the digital communications strategist at the ACLU of Maryland. And good evening, and welcome to Free the Vote here virtually, as we're going to have a conversation tonight about voter disenfranchisement, power, and so much more. I'm your host, Faraji Muhammad, host of For the Culture on WEAA 88.9 FM. And I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk about such a very, very important conversation. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, why are we talking about voter rights now, considering we're after a major national election? I say this is the best time to talk about voter empowerment, disenfranchisement, power, because even though we're past a national election, there are still many more elections that are coming up. And most importantly, it is time for us to have conversations that's going to push the needle to and get more people engaged, and most importantly, to get the next generation of future voters involved. So this is the right time. You don't wait until the few, a couple of months before a major election to start having conversations about voter empowerment, voter empower, disenfranchisement, suppression. You don't wait until a couple of months to start having conversations about restoring the rights to votes to former felons. You have that conversation right after an election, like we're going to be having here tonight. And I'm so very happy that we have the opportunity to have this discussion and talk about this issue in a very, very uh, important and authentic manner, because we are joined by fantastic panelists to give us some insight and more details about what you just saw from Free the Vote. Now, again, folks, this is a documentary that has some of the most powerful voices in this uh, that relates to this issue in the state of Maryland. And I'm so happy to see uh, sisters and brothers that I personally know that are involved in this documentary to continue to push it out there that restoring the right to vote is an important mission. It's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a seasonal thing, but it is an ongoing effort to make sure that as we're talking about restoring the right to vote, we're also talking about restoring some sense of humanity 
the front to those who may be coming out of the correctional system. Tonight, we're going to have this conversation with a few people. Joining us is Amber Taylor, who served as the producer of Free the Vote. She is the digital communication strategist with the ACLU of Maryland. Amber, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you. I'm so excited for everyone who just saw the world premiere of this film. <laughs> How about that? How about that? And we'll certainly talk about all of the butterflies and jitters <laughs> in a few moments. Um, we are also joined by Kiana Johnson, who serves as the executive director of Life After Release, who was in featured in the film as well. Good evening, Kiana. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Faraji, and thank you so much for moderating this event and to the ACLU and to Amber um, and Dana, thank you all for um, deeming this as an important you know, issue for us to be talking about. Thank you. Absolutely. And then we also have another uh, uh, guest that was featured in the film, Dr. Pippa Holloway, who is the author of Living in Infamy, Felony, Felon Disenfranchisement and the History of American Citizenship. Dr. Holloway, thank you. Thank you. Thank, you for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and uh, just want, thrilled to be part of this wonderful project with so many wonderful, wonderful people um, doing such great work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then certainly last but not least, we have Mr. Chris Wilson, who is a serial social entrepreneur. He's a st storyteller. He's an artist, social justice advocate and author of The Master Plan. Brother Chris, welcome, sir. And thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate uh, the film. I think it's so important and I'm excited to participate tonight. Absolutely, absolutely. Folks, in a few moments, we will be uh, taking your questions uh, on our Zoom call here. However, you can post your questions in the Q&A portion at the bottom of the screen and uh, we will get to those questions and make sure your questions are as broad, as diverse as possible. These fantastic panelists that we have here tonight are able to answer those questions. And if they don't know, I will be very surprised if they don't know. But if they don't know, I'm sure that they can provide you with directions on the resources or individuals that can give you the answer to your question. So there's no stupid question. Please post your questions in our Q&A at the bottom of the screen. Um, and also we would like to thank the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, another one of our major sponsors here tonight for uh, being a part of this important virtual conversation as the Reginald F. Lewis Museum continues to put out content and most importantly, keep history at the forefront of the conversation, especially when you're talking about history like black history in Baltimore. So to the, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, we thank you so much for your support. Uh, let's start with you, Amber, because you're the producer of Free the Vote. Tell us about what, what sparked this idea to put this documentary together. Yeah, so uh, the ACLU of Maryland, uh, this is part of our strategic priorities to make sure that every citizen who isn't currently incarcerated has access to the ballot. And you know, this is, you know, this is part of like our, our longer term project, but what we found when talking to people is that a lot of people didn't know about the history behind this issue or worse, come to, worse than that, they had like all these misconceptions uh, about people who are incarcerated, who they were mm. and all these vilifying like thoughts about them. And what we really wanted to do with this piece was to highlight the human beings behind this issue and show how much it really does impact people and also the, the real uh, racist roots of why we think the way that we do about voter, uh, about people who are currently incarcerated, um, not having the right to vote. Right. This this was definitely designed to disenfranchise, particularly black people um, post Civil War era. So and this is just continued um, into 2020. So as we move forward and thinking about 2021 um, and, and years future, we really want to make sure that Maryland is one of the leaders on this issue to make sure that every person who is currently incarcerated has the right to vote and everyone who you know also is formerly incarcerated knows that they have the right to vote and is exercising that vote. This is such a, a, a big conversation, um, especially here in the state of Maryland. As I've been doing work in, in many different spaces, Amber, I've, I've come across so many fantastic people, um, black and white, uh, from various social economic backgrounds. Uh, and, and, and it's just amazing how a single cause can bring people together. How, how did you determine 
who was going to be in this film, this documentary, and and whose voices weren't going to be in a voice in this film and documentary. I, I would assume that that would have been a very very hard decision for you. It was extremely difficult because um, <laughs> very fortunate here in Maryland that we have so many fantastic leaders, people who are formerly incarcerated, really leading this effort. And so we really wanted to make sure that this piece was more of a megaphone to their advocacy. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do at the onset of this film is, make, is to record people who were in jail um, and you know who, are, who were incarcerated, you know, tell their stories. Unfortunately, with COVID-19, we weren't able to do that, but we do have a letter from a person who did write in about what voting means to them. Um, but really, like it, it was hard and it was also easy because I just shone the light on the brightest stars here in Maryland um, who've been working on this issue for so for such a long time, and also the also historians and other advocates who've been working on this on a local and national level. Um, so it's it's really just like continuing the work that we have already been doing here in Maryland and also also nationwide. I want to give you an opportunity just uh, before we get into the heart and meat, because I know that these conversations can get real thick, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to inform uh, all of our watchers how they can get access to Free the Vote, the movie. Um, what can they do? Let's put that information out at the beginning here. Yes, definitely. So look, everybody, please go to freethevotesmovie.com is right here. Um, I put it on my virtual screen. Um, you, you can go to that website to request a virtual screening for the film. The screening, the, this film will be available um, on YouTube after this film, after this uh, event is over. And, you know, definitely sign the petition urging elected officials to, uh, to support this issue. You know, this is a solvable issue here in Maryland. We can definitely get to this in the, in the next or, or in the 2022 legislative session. We just need, need to make sure that politicians know that you care about this, that you care about people who are incarcerated um, and that they matter. Absolutely, absolutely. Amber, you did a fantastic job. You and the team hit there uh, making sure that this issue is packaged in a certain way. I'm, a, I'm, I'm really big on presentation. And so for you guys to put this conversation in a way that I think is compelling in terms of a documentary, we're not seeing too many documentaries about what's going on behind the scenes, what's going on behind the bars, especially for former felons and, and, and current felons and, 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 and whatnot and current inmates, but we're not seeing the struggle. And I think that's important for us to highlight this, this, this struggle um, to add it to the largest tapestry of the struggle of, of quote unquote everyday citizens, that it's not too far different, that even though you have some of our community members and family and brothers and sisters behind bars, they are still part of the community. It seems like that was one of the big things I got from the film. Absolutely, and then um, I would also like to highlight that, you know, most many of the people who are currently incarcerated, they're gonna be coming back home and so they, they are, they, even when they are incarcerated, they are definitely still a part of our community. They're still parents, right? They, they still pay taxes. They still are, you know, are so much a part of our community, but we have as a society chosen to push them to the side and to say that we're gonna forget about them. And that's intentional as well, right? Other countries don't do this. Spain, um, you know, South Africa, Ireland, other countries, other democracies don't have this practice. And we can definitely solve this here in the state of Maryland and then hopefully um, nationwide as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I want to bring some of the other um, panelists into this conversation at this point. Uh, we're joined by, again, Kiana Johnson, Executive Director of Life After Release. Uh, Kiana, talk to us about this, this, whole, this whole struggle here, restoring the, the rights to vote to those who are coming out from the, from the penal system. Um, it seems like this is a clear sign, uh, Kiana, that America has yet to evolve, that it took us all this point here and even in the state of Maryland, it took us until 2019, until we started to see some change. Uh, some people would say that that's a good thing, and some people would say it's long overdue. Where do you stand on it? I'm definitely on the side that it's long overdue, Faraji. Um, the fact that someone is incarcerated, uh, the whole point of incarceration is to be rehabilitative um, or correctional in, in its nature. And to tell someone that they can't vote or um, they're ineligible to vote, 
they at, at this day and age in 20, 2020, 2019, it's just clear that in, indicative of where we are as a society. Um, it's, it's, it's just really sad that we're not allowing folks to vote while they're, while they're incarcerated in, anyway, because those, yeah. um, just because you're incarcerated, um, when I was incarcerated, I was a mother, my kids still went to school in the districts in which um, affected me, right, and affected my children. So we should still be able to vote, period. Um, we, we're not voting. It's not a, it's not a, a you know, a, a, it's, it's, we should be voting, period. That, that's mm -hmm. all I have to say. And it, the fact that we're still here in 2019 is just clear that uh, society is still trying to, um, to mute us and they can't mute us. Is this, uh, uh, is, it, it, the conversation is often, or the narrative is often contextualized from a, a black and white thing. I know that it was a powerful statistic to show in the film, uh, over 18,000 folks are in the, in the penal system and the correctional facilities here in Maryland, 72% are black. But is this just about a black and white thing or is this something really about humanity and citizenship? It's definitely a, a black thing um, because it was designed, as we talked about the constitution and we talked about the amendments and such, it was designed to, uh, to suppress and to stop black folks from voting. There was a black code um, and this is uh, so that we can remove the power from black folks. Everybody else that is a part of this, poor people um, and individuals who get caught in this system are, are only, um, they're only getting caught in it, but it was aimed and it was to suppress black people. So we have to, we can't get away from that. We can't get away from the fact that it, um, the keeping us from voting, black folks from voting is the whole reason why we, we are here right now. And so we can't lose sight of that. We, we really can't. Uh, Dr. Holloway, uh, author of Living in Infamy, Fel Felon uh, Disenfranchisement in the History of American Citizenship. Dr. Holloway, I'm very interested in hearing your take on that. Um, it, it, in terms of, you know, if it's, if it's a racial situation, but we're still seeing white people, we're still seeing Latinos at this point, has it just kind of gotten out of control? And, and how do we start the process of, of kind of getting out of this hole that the forefathers of this country has dug us in? Those are some great and important questions. Um, and I would agree with this with this larger issue. I mean, when we look at the history of these laws in the 19th century, um, they were used very intentionally in the immediate years after the Civil War to target African Americans in the South. And that's one of the things my historical research showed. And, and honestly, I was I was surprised when I found it. I, I wasn't I, I was expecting this to be a story about race when I started this research, but mm -hmm. I wasn't expecting it to be so glaringly a story in which um, such overt um, racism and racial targeting was used in the very first election in which African-Americans were allowed to vote in the end after gaining freedom after the Civil War, these laws were trotted out. Even before they were able to vote, they were planning on using them to target African-American voters. So it's important to understand that history. So, and, and I mean, that's a history, um, it's not a hidden history, but it's still shocking. Yeah, and the um, the story that I talked about, um, the, the history that I talked about um, in the in the clip in the film, um, when the when whippings were used um, in advance of the vote um, in, in North Carolina was the most the clear most clear evidence I found was its use in North Carolina. But there's fragments of evidence of this in other states. Um, just the 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 rob the brutality of that violence, and and for me as a as not just a historian but also as a citizen of the United States today, um, reading about how violence was used to stop people from politically participating and violence is used um, in order to disempower whole communities and criminalize whole communities has a lot of resonance for today about to make me think about um, the political work that violence does in our society still today. So so now we're at this point, Dr. Holloway, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering, um, it, it, it seems like the the changes that we are expecting are, are it's not as drastic as we that we that we want to see. That there's they're small, they're incremental. They're you know here's a policy change here and a policy change there. But what is it really going to have to take for us to really turn this thing around and 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 bring some sort of hope back into 
this process? Well, there is some good reason to be hopeful about the national trend with regard to disfranchisement of people with prior, prior felony convictions. Um, mm -hmm. If you look at the numbers, they're actually going down nationally as more and more states are restoring the vote to people um, immediately after release. Um, um, California, I believe, just um, was voted on a referendum to restore the vote to people um, who are still on parole. So the, the trend, the, 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 the bar line is, is going slowly in the right direction nationally. Um, what, what, um, this, what this film and this organization is working to do in Maryland to re-enfranchise people that are currently incarcerated is going to be a heavier lift, I think. Um, with, I would hope that we can build on the momentum of, you know, we, we seem to, as a nation, be slowly recognizing that people after incarceration should receive their voting rights. And so mm -hmm. I, I hope that for some people, the logic of that pushes them to start thinking about restoring the rights to people that are currently incarcerated. Absolutely. And, and, and I think the other part of that, Dr. Holloway, is the fact that you got to look at those who are coming out of the correctional facilities as human beings. There's, there's always that element of humanity. Here's my big question, and then we're going to go to uh, Chris Wilson. Here's my big question for you, Doc. Uh, justice. You know, you know uh, we often have these conversations about the rights of felons, but what about justice for those whose families have been impacted by the acts and the behaviors of those coming out of, of the systems that some people feel like, why are you fighting for them when they've done wrong and they violated me? Uh, how do we reconcile or bring some sort of atonement between you know, a families that are seeking justice and expecting to keep people in prison for a very long time, and then at the same time still keeping the humanity and the rights of felons intact so they don't feel less than human? That's a pretty big question, um, and I, I wish I, I wish I had an answer to it that was even remotely um, honoring the the importance of that as a question. Um, for me, the answer is I don't I don't think there is an answer, honestly, that I can I can articulate on the fly there. But I will say that for me, the answer is democracy. Um, that mm. when we all participate, when all voices are heard, um, when we all feel like this is a part a process that um, is. is honors us, that honors our families and honors our communities, then maybe like, I can't figure that out, but my hope is that the collective wisdom of all of us participating in our democracy might be able to. Chris, I wanna bring you into the conversation, sir, because you have a story, you, you, you've been um, in working in these spaces. First and foremost, Chris, thank you again for being a part of the conversation. Tell us Thanks a little bit about you. Uh, tell us a little bit about your story here and why yeah, this so is such a big issue. Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks again for having me. So I went to prison as a juvenile. I was sentenced uh, to natural life in prison. Uh, be before that, my mom and myself uh, were attacked by a police officer and he tried to kill my mom. Uh, and, you know, they, people came after me after this and I ended up taking a person's life. But I was, you know, teleported to another world. I was 118 pounds with a, a life sentence in adult, an adult maximum security prison. And so I grew up, I spent almost half my life there, about 16 and a half years. But while inside of prison, I went to college and therapy and was able to get a second chance to get out. And so I've been spending a lot of my time uh, since being home advocating for criminal justice reform, particularly uh, the right for people to vote. Oh, let me under So this is a very, very impersonal uh, yeah, very uh, personal. For you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, and so, 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 and I think the, just, to, uh, you know, kind of ask the same question that I asked Dr. Holloway in terms of justice and, you know, trying to finding the, 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 the middle ground between, okay, you want a, a family that is seeking justice, but at the same time, you want to keep the humanity of, of, of inmates right. intact. In Right. So, so I would, I would suggest, um, and, and, and some people uh, mentioned this before, is how prisons, if you commit a crime, I do believe in punishment and the rule of law. And so, but, you know, as, as someone mentioned earlier, it's, it's called corrections, right? So you should also correct some stuff. And as taxpaying citizens, we actually pay for this incarceration. We should get a better return on our taxpaying dollars. And so there should be therapy. There should be educational opportunities. And some people will say, well, why should people incarcerated have access to education when our kids? Well, a lot of, a lot of particularly black and brown communities 
uh, or shortchange on their education as, as young people. And, and they should they should be able to have those resources when they're in prison so that they come out and they don't go back. And we can take the money that we save and put it into our schools. And so this is common sense. Everyone like knows about this stuff, but really what it comes down to is about race. Mm. It's, a, it's about race. It's about, you know, when we can look at history and see that, you know, people want, I don't know, policies were put in place for black people um, to be um, oppressed. Mm. Mm. And, hi, and, and Chris, I, I'm, I'm interested. What, where are we here in the state of Maryland? I mean, they say that Maryland is one of the most progressive states in the union. Uh, <laughs> right. I mean, that's what they say, right? Yeah. Uh, but but where are we in the state of Maryland? What, are we, what grade would you give Maryland and its efforts to restore the rights of, of, of the voting rights for, for inmates? A good question, right? Uh, 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 well, I would say maybe maybe uh, a B, a B plus B minus, because you know, 2016, uh, 44,000 uh, folks who were convicted of felonies uh, regained their right to vote, and I was able to vote for the first time in my life. Um, although uh, Maryland and Baltimore in particular, like we have a very low voter turnout uh, rate, but I think there's a, a educational gap where we need to educate people to let people know that their individual votes do matter. And I, I've tried this every like, you know, campaign cycle and people would say like, well, well, what does my vote matter? Like, it's like, you know, everything's been messed up. What does it matter if I vote? And, and it, it is important and we should vote. And especially, um, you know, what you guys mentioned earlier, thinking about not just who our president would be, but thinking about our state's attorneys and our judges and people who have discretionary power where they don't have to send our children off to prison, where we can go and we can send them into programs or get them the services that they need. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Kian, I want to bring you back in into this because you look like you look like you wanted to say something about that. <laughs> <laughs> but where would you say, where, where, what score would you give Maryland um, in, in our efforts, what we're doing here in this in the state around this issue? Okay, I'm going to decline to give a score, but I am going to say, or, or grade rather, but I am going to say that I think um, the best thing to come out of the state of Maryland was Harriet Tubman. And so, um, you know, leading us out um, and, and, and getting us to where we need to be. But let's, let's understand one thing about, about crime. Crime is a social construct, right? And mm -hmm. so when we talk about it being a social construct and crime is created by those in power to keep that power and to oppress folks who um, they don't wanna have that particular power, right? So we have to first stop thinking about um, crime and start to address harm and talk about what is harm, right? Because you have crime and when we're talking about restored and when we're talking about um, talking about victims and we're talking about all these things, what we have to also realize is that uh, when a person commits a harm inside of this system, it does not necessarily mean that the, that the, the quote unquote victim is gonna be made whole or restored. We have no restorative processes um, in, this, in the criminal legal system that we currently have. And to punish someone um, to me is, is, is not what, um, is, is not, is not, is not going to correct or it's not going to remedy or provide a relief, not even to the victim, right? So what we are talking about here is where we're talking about restorative justice and we're talking about restorative processes is that uh, we should not be addressing or even equating that a person who has committed a harm within our community and then punishing them by taking away their right to vote, right? When I was incarcerated, I was still a mother Right. When I was incarcerated, I was still a woman um, who did not have adequate um, feminine hygiene products in the in the prison in which I was in. Right. Which, by the way, the state of Maryland only has one prison in the state of Maryland for women. We have zero. Um, um, uh, what is it called? Uh, Pre-release units um, from I'm not units, but uh, pre-release centers for women. Right. But we have like seven or eight for men. Right. So when you're talking about Maryland being progressive, you can't really in the same breath say that Maryland is a progressive state and also say that uh, Maryland incarcerates the, the most black men in the country. Those two things don't sit together um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the same way to me. Um, mm -hmm. The state of Maryland, let's also be very clear that it took a lot of work from the advocates on the ground to get us to where we are right now. Our governor, Larry Hogan, vetoed this bill in the first place. It was not an easy win. We had to go back and, and request 
request and demand that we get what it is that we want because our governor said, no way, you can't, you, you all can't do that. He vetoed this. So this is not progressive. This is something that we should be looking at and we should be um, saying, almost shameful because why is our governor saying oh no we don't believe in that and he's at the top so i just wanted to kind of say um and kind of put that out there that this did not come from this did not come from a, a, a progressive state uh, and, a, and a progressive governor that said i want to give this to this population of people it came from the advocates on the ground taking back what they stole from us I know, you know what, Kiana, and I appreciate the fact that you 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 putting that out there. I want to bring Amber into this, Amber, because the work that you're doing with the ACLU, the work that you highlighted in your film, Free the Vote, um, the conversation about redefining corrections, I want to go back to what Kiana said, needs to be kind of, you know, that whole idea of correction, that whole idea of rehabilitation. I think there needs to be a different conversation, some new definitions of what that means. What does that look like? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? That is always now that we're seeing there seems to be we're at that point where we need to redefine corrections. That we need to say rehabilitation needs to look like A, B, and C. How do we get there, and what does that look like? Yeah, they sell you and won't even try to act as though we have all the answers to this. This is a collective, um, you know, issue that a lot of people have been working on. You know, people like, uh, you know, Life at the Release Keanu's right here um, and other groups have been working on this as well. But I will say that um, one, one of the things I think people need to really think about this issue is, you know, we're getting really just trying to make sure that our system actually lives and does the thing that it's supposed to do, right? Like having a criminal justice system, it doesn't mm -hmm. have justice for hardly anybody. Um, what the ACLU is committed to doing is really finding non-carceral solutions um, to, uh, to many of the problems that we have, right? We don't need to be locking up people for, um, for public health issues, right? If you're, you know, if you are a drug addict, um, you have, you know, um, addiction issues, we shouldn't be putting you in jail because of that. If you stole something that's a petty crime, you know, we have like this, we also are, are locking people up for really petty and minor things. Even for things that are major, we need to make sure that when, you know, if we do put people in a, you know, if we do put people away that we really are supporting them and figuring out how do we like, how do we get them to being, um, you know, the, the person that they really want to be and the person that they are. Um, I don't think that it's important. It, I don't think it's good to define a person by their mistakes, right? They're mm. more than just like the worst thing that they ever did, right? The, the worst thing I ever did does not define who I am. I still am, you know, a black woman who's from Baltimore, who cares about my community, who wants to be a part of my community. And that doesn't take, that doesn't go away just, in case I, just because I did something wrong. And that's true for, you know, the, over the 18,000 people here in Maryland um, who can't vote um, because of a felony conviction. So it's, so I think that, you know, this is gonna be a thing that we, we also do as citizens, right? If 2020 has taught us nothing, it's that the power is in the people. And if we want to live in some in a better community and a better state, then we can come up with the better solutions and um, and come up with some better systems for how we solve problems. Um, this is not you know pie in the sky dreaming here. This is something that we can actually do, and people mm -hmm. have been working on this for quite some time. So uh, you know, definitely moving away from seeing incarceration as like the catch-all system for all of our societal problems and really taking that time to invest in mental health services and community services and education and, and all the things that we know, factually speaking, actually help our communities, particularly black and brown and poor communities. Absolutely. Uh, folks, I just wanna throw out another reminder as we're talking to our wonderful panelists that we wanna make sure that we get as many questions from you as possible in a few moments We'll be shifting gears to get to answer your questions. Post your questions on our Q&A section on our Zoom call here uh, and, and continue to post the chat section into the chat area as well. But we want to get as many questions as possible for our panelists. Dr. Holloway, um, I'm wondering as I'm listening to Kiana, listening to Amber, you know, again, going back to this idea of redefining corrections, it seems like it, it, it requires not just good intentions, but also political will. And at this point, um, 
you know, if we're, we're going to have a new governor in a couple of years. We're going to have a new in, in the city of Baltimore. We're going to we're our new our next mayor is getting inaugurated next week. Um, we got a new administration coming into Washington, D.C. Are we finally and given the fact that we've had a summer of racial injustice, a summer where people have forced the conversation about racism to the forefront? Are we finally going to see some changes? Are we finally going to get to have what it takes to have the political will to start to systemically uproot some of these biases, injustices, and overall, um, you know, disappointments that we've been seeing? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, when any, you know, any politician will say that you have to make them do it. And um, anytime we want to move politics, we have to organize. And it seems like what's going on in Maryland is some really critical organizing um, to make people's voices heard um, to politicians and to other citizens. Um, and I think, I think the more people um, listen to issues, see films like this, listen to the voices of the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated, um, I would hope that people with a sense of justice, people with a belief in our democracy, um, would, who perhaps previously hadn't thought about voting rights for the, for the incarcerated or formerly incarcerated or hadn't supported this might begin to change their mind. So it's about organizing, it's about listening, it's about communicating um, to each other as well as to politicians. And talk to us, uh, Dr. Holloway, about the money because that's a huge part of why the system is, 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 um, is still in existence the way it is, right? Because you have a number of corporations there are a number of vested interests from individuals to, to companies that are vested in incarceration, in the locking up of black, brown, and white people in this country. So, so what does that fit in this whole conversation? Yeah, all of us who know and love people behind bars um, know the incredible um, drain on financial resources that happen when we try to communicate with our family members and loved ones, um, when we try to support them through commissary payments, through everything else. So there's a lot of money that's made off incarceration. That's certainly true. Um, and, you know, there's this funny tension too, in which people are saying, well, we, we don't want to, we, you know, I actually really like what one of my fellow panelists said, and that when he said that we want to get our money's worth out of the system incarceration, that if we're spending all of this money on the system, we want it to work. And if we have as a core societal value of re rehabilitation, um, and what I would hope is a common sense agreement that nobody actually wants crime to happen, and then thinking about systems of incarceration as places where we can prevent future criminal behavior um, might be again something that helps make the dollars add up to the average taxpayer. Mm. And there's a lot of dollars that are being that's being spent right now um, per year. I'll be I've seen a lot of different numbers, but I'm gonna ask any of our wonderful panelists what is the the the, the amount of money that the uh, that that is spent on on an inmate in the Maryland state prison system. It's about 40, last I knew it was 41, about $41,000 a year to house um, an inmate um, inside of a car. $41,000 a year. That's someone's salary. And that's per year. And that is, that is, that is that contingent upon, you know, uh, does that go, does it get higher depending based upon how long that person is in the system or how does that work? Or is that just, you know, a, a, a you know, a flat rate, quote unquote. Well, right now I know that we have um, folks who are aging in prison um, and we have medical care uh, that we are providing for those individuals on top of the amount of money that we're spending to keep them incarcerated. Well, the lack, well, very small medical care that we're providing for them. But um, it, 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 that, that's what it is. Um, America says that it much would rather uh, pay the money to um, incarcerate or quote unquote criminal um, than it would to educate or, you know, in, invest that money in school. And so what we need to be doing is we need to have a system of divesting and defunding um, from the current carceral system and, and refunding our communities um, so that we can get the things that we need and so that we won't have to uh, have a criminal, criminal or a jail prison. And Chris, that was exactly what you were saying. I mean, we're there, there's the mantra right now, defund the police that is out there. Uh, but there may be, we, we might need to change that to defund the prison. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. you, you know what I mean? And, and at this point, um, 
now you're about to go to war. It's one thing to talk about the police department. You yeah. know, that's, that's often the punching bag for social issues and ills. Now right. when you talk about the prisons, it's like, mm, you, you, yeah. you, you better watch yeah. your phone, don't start your car. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, talk it's to us a little bit about that. About that. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely complicated too, especially when we were talking earlier about the predatory prison uh, corporations who uh, give kickbacks to uh, prisons, have lobbying power to keep uh, certain people in power that will keep bids filled. I mean, all that stuff is, is, is very complicated, but I think it's, it's important for us to have conversations like this that we're having today uh, to educate people further about how systems work and what we can do uh, to change the system. And so I think especially a, a few things on, on a local level, like really uh, holding our, our state officials accountable, even our prison officials and just being more attuned to it because if, if I'm paying for it, I'm a taxpaying citizen here in Maryland, I'm paying for like the services or corrections. I want it like to, to your point, uh, I want it to work. And so I think we just got to let people uh, remind people of why this matters in a democracy, because at, at one way or another, it's going to affect all of us. And you know what, Chris, I think, and to all of the panelists, I think that the, one of the big ways, I'm big on communication. We need to re, redefine the, 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 the language that's used. I mean, right. we, can't, we can't put prisons in the same space as business. I mean, yes. and Dr. Holloway, <laughs> you've talked about this, and, and I know that that's, that's really the, and it's so hard to see that, oh, when you see stock, prisons on stock markets, <laughs> now people become products. Yes. And, and essentially, they, 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 their humanity is lost. Their rights are lost. I mean, all of those things are pushed to the wayside. So I think that the big thing is that we can't, that we have to change the language that, no, I, I would say, let's take them off the stock markets. Let's not make it a, a, you know, a, a public entity that people can quote unquote invest in. These right. are prisons. They are supposed to be houses of corrections and rehabilitations, not houses of profit and, and bottom line. So um, it's, it's gonna be interesting. I wanna jump to some, some questions that we got from our watchers and folks, again, post your questions in our comments, uh, the chat area, as well as the Q&A. But Frederick Taylor put out a couple of questions and put this out for everyone. He said, uh, putting this together, what were, one of, what were one or two of the most surprising things that you learned? And I guess, Amber, that question is for you. And then the second part of that is, do you feel the community is aware now that most ex-felons can vote? So Amber, I'm gonna pose, pose that question to you. Sure. So, uh, and those are two excellent questions. Um, you know, some of the things that I found most like surprising when I was learning about this is really just how deep, um, deep rooted this issue really was. Like I, I came to this knowing like a, a, a small amount of it, but as I was going through the, uh, making this film, um, it sort of was a rabbit hole of, oh my gosh, like we've been doing this and we did that. Like, and also in a sense of embarrassment, I'm like Maryland, you know, I thought, you know, we claimed that, you know, we're like sore of the South and not the South, but we've also been perpetuating so much of these, like the like the worst parts of like the South that people like just like uh, stereotype. Um, we are a part of that system as well. Maryland, for instance, um, you know, when it comes to the 15th Amendment, didn't even ratify that uh, that amendment. We decided, you know, Maryland back, you know, in the 1800s was like, oh, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know, I really want to keep the system the way that it currently is. And so like, this is some of the surprising facts, not just about um, the nation, but also about Maryland, how we really have been this, um, you know, dancing back and forth of like, oh, well, on one hand, we've done some really great things that other states haven't done, you know, in terms of in, uh, expanding the franchise, expanding the vote to people who are, you know, formerly incarcerated people who are incarcerated on a misdemeanor or um, who are sitting in jail waiting to be convicted. We have, we have expanded that franchise. But then at the same time, we haven't provided the infrastructure for those people to be able to vote. We haven't been able to provide them um, with the uh, people who are formerly incarcerated, the knowledge and really making that public uh, campaign to make sure that every person who was formerly incarcerated knows they can vote. Um, and to actually answer that second question, 
no, unfortunately, this is also why we made the film that many people who are formerly incarcerated in Maryland still don't know that they can vote. They have, you know, all types of misconceptions about, well, if I haven't, you know, paid my child support taxes, like, you know, child support payments, I might be not be able to vote. Um, if I try to vote um, and, you know, and I actually can't vote, I'll get sent back to prison um, mm -hmm. for violating my parole for some reason. So all they're all this all these myths and things that are out there. And even people who are, um, you know, elect, you know, sorry, even people in the incarceration system, right? People who are parole officers and other people like that, they are themselves spreading misinformation. You know, it, actually it recently this year um, in 2020, the Board of Elections of Baltimore City sent a letter out to a woman who was formerly incarcerated saying that her voter registration was canceled because she was, um, she, you know, she had a, a prior conviction, and the law on that has been really clear since 2016, and you know we're still having like these type of things happen that are popping up all over the place, um, and this is still like coming from the Board of Elections, right? A trusted government uh, agency is still themselves um, perpetuating this misinformation. So mm. this is about um, really, really educating people, making sure that you spread the word to everybody and your mama and your friends about the uh, about people who are current formerly incarcerated. They have the right to vote in Maryland. I cannot say that enough. And please make sure that you spread the word to people who. Um, spread the word so that we make sure that every person who is currently incarcerated both has the right to vote and has access to the ballot. Just a quick question, Amber. What happened in that situation with that woman? Uh, we had a press conference with our friends at Alfred Justice <laughs> and others, uh, put them on blast, and she was able to vote in the 2020 election. Do not play with us. We are coming for you if you try to suppress people's right to vote. I just, I just wanted to highlight that little tidbit of the story. I appreciate that. Um, we had another question that says, are there particular issues that are important to the incarcerated or recently released population? Is, is voter rights, and I think this is a great question because is this the issue that, are, that, that, that those who are in the system who are coming out of the system really care about? And I'm either ask that to Kiana or Chris. You can go first, I'm Kiana. Absolutely, we absolutely we care about it. Um, and uh, this is what makes us that's a part of public safety is to make sure that we are um, educated and made aware uh, about um, about voting rights, right, and about being able to participate. Because if I don't have the voice in whether or not uh, my kid goes to a good school or my roads are, um, are made better, then I may not care much more about the community because I'm not invested in it. I'm not civically engaged. So it is a part of public safety for ensuring that um, formerly incarcerated people and people who are coming out of the system are educated and um, there should be programs and there should be campaigns and there should be um, embedded in the things that we do um, in, the same, in the same way that they require a urinalysis for a person who wasn't even incarcerated on a drug charge should right. be the same way they should be passing out ballots at the probation and parole office. It's, it's no excuse and there's no reasons why we should not um, be advocating and, and pushing this as a social norm. Are there any other issues that are important to to those who are in the system or coming home? Yeah, I would I would like to add to that. Uh, I would say that. Uh, well, first, I mean, another thing that what makes it important is because uh, elected officials will only probably listen to their constituents, people who can vote for them, and so it, it essentially silences um, this population if like they don't have a right to vote. So like that that makes it more important as well. Um, the second thing is too is is mental health. Uh, there's there's a huge need for mental health services for folks incarcerated and returning home from prison. I remember how hard it was for me uh, psychologically, like being told no and just trying to do all the right things and having doors mm -hmm. shut in my face and having to check in to my parole officer twice a week and pay for your analysis and didn't have a job or a car. And so all of these things create um, you know tremendous uh, stress on people and mental health services or something that's needed. And if we have a right to vote, then we can hold our voted officials accountable and, and advocate for those services to be provided for us. Absolutely. Stacy, one of our watchers posed a question and I think Dr. Holloway, I think this will be great for you. She asked the question, 
Uh, what are the justifications that politicians still use to justify denying the vote to currently incarcerated people? Sure, and actually my answer to that can jump on um, to the previous question for just a second, if that's all right. Sure, um, sure. People have studied uh, formerly incarcerated people at the ballot box, and in fact, they tend to vote pretty much like any other member of their demographic. Um, so in terms of the way they participate in elections, um, they're not a particularly unique voting block at the ballot box. And I think that kind of speaks to this, this current question, which is that one of the arguments that some people make about why formerly incarcerated people shouldn't be able to vote or even currently incarcerated people is that they might vote a certain way, um, that they might, you know, be, they, well, they might th not think that crimes should be crimes because they formerly committed crimes or something like mm. that. Um, and that's, that's really not a good argument. There's no statistics to suggest that formerly incarcerated people are looser on crime or wanting to do anything different, particularly politically than other members of their demographic. Um, you know, when you start listening to people's arguments about why um, people should be disfranchised while incarcerated or for life, a lot of them are about punishment and punitiveness. Um, they're about retribution. They're about, sometimes some people suggest that it might be a deterrent to crime, which um, we know that generally speaking, punishments don't function as deterrents. Um, the death sentence doesn't function as a deterrent to murder, nor does incarceration tend to function as a deterrent for any other kinds of crime. So um, given that, it seems highly unlikely that losing the right to vote would be a deterrent um, for, for a particular crime. Um, so, you know, most of the, there are certainly arguments made against it, um, none of which I find particularly persuasive. That said, um, restoring the vote to people who are currently incarcerated does have some logistical challenges in terms of where those people will vote, how they will vote. Um, you need to make sure that they are, they are free to vote, um, that they have a, um, that they're able to exercise their voting rights while incarcerated. Um, without um, threats or, um, you know, freely to do that. So there, the, there are some arguments that if incarcerated people are re-enfranchised, um, it should be done carefully um, mm. so that their rights are protected. Um, but the, that's really the, the only, what I would consider a legitimate argument, at least in my opinion, about, um, about enfranchising these populations. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Holloway. Uh, Nikki posted a question that says, is there any support for enfranchising the incarcerated among parole officers, judges, even prison officials? If not, is there any way to get their support? Uh, Dr. Holloway, I'll start that with you and then we can kind of do, see if anyone else wanna jump in on that. Thank you, Nikki. I don't have any particular insight into that question um, and I don't really know much about the politics um, or relationships of these people. Um, with incarcerated people. I mean, I will say that sometimes when you have personal relationships with people, it might make it easier to see their humanity. Although I think perhaps people um, have not experienced that with people that are in the correction system. So I, I may defer to others who may have more insight into all that. I appreciate that, Dr. Holloway. Uh, to any of our other panelists, anyone else want to take a, a jab at that question about, is there any support for enfranchising the incarcerated among par parole officers, judges? even prison officials? If not, is there any way to get their support? I'm not sure that I really understand the question, um, but I will say um, that if we can vote, um, we can run for office, right? And so just like Monica did, um, and she's now an elected official, if, if this is where this question is kind of going, I'm, I'm thinking, um, but if we can if we can vote we can run and we should be in these positions we should be um juries and jur in juror boxes we should be judges we should be parole officers we should be social workers right so that um disenfranchisement just doesn't stop at the ballot box um it, it also extends into these roles that a lot of them say that if you're formally incarcerated, you can't be, uh, or you know, you can't be a judge, or you can't be a lawyer, or you can't be these things. So, I'm thinking that's probably where that question is going. If if, if not, then you can you can put it in the chat, and I'll try to re-answer it. Okay, fantastic. Uh, we have another question from Deborah. Is it correct that today in Maryland, all people who are incarcerated, state or federal prisons, are eligible to vote? So big problem is that they don't know that they can vote both in prison and after they serve? This is the, this is the question from Deborah. Is that correct? So not entirely. Um, people who are, uh, people who can vote in Maryland are people who uh, are formerly incarcerated, all people who are formerly incarcerated 
people who are serving a mis who are serving time for a misdemeanor and people who are who have yet to be convicted of a crime right so if you're sitting in jail on bail you know not being able to afford bail um and just waiting for your your uh to for your case to get heard you can vote in the state of maryland it's only those who are currently convicted of a felony um can't vote in the state of maryland and that's about eighteen thousand people that's a lot of people but it's not it's not the entire population and that's really again thanks to the work advocacy work that we've been doing on this issue for about 30 years to really shrink this number to to, uh, to be down to 18. also if you're on parole or probation um for for a felony it doesn't matter if you're on parole or probation um in your home if you're on free dirt you're on free ground you, you can be you, you can vote fantastic fantastic um uh, and Nicole and Barbara, they both kind of have similar questions, but Nicole Porter said, uh, the film is great, Amber. Exciting that you all are working on universal suffrage in Maryland. Is there legislation on the horizon? Barbara Garden checked in and says, is there any legislation on the horizon that we should look to, to support that would provide the right to vote to incarcerated individuals? And Amber, I think we could, we could pose that question to you and any other uh, of our panelists can add to, you know, to talk about the work that they're doing. Yeah, so we're, we are thinking of this issue along with the Every, um, Every Maryland Votes uh, Coalition, um, still like a one-two punch, right? So first punch, we're going to be working on making sure that the infrastructure um, to be able to vote inside is in place, right? It's no, you know, we, we have this, uh, we have this ish, issue right now where people who um, are currently incarcerated and have the right to vote um, don't have access to ballots, can't, you know, actually exercise that right to vote. So the first step in the 2021 uh, legislative session is to make sure, is to create the infrastructure with the Board of Elections um, to have them um, create, sorry, to have them create the infrastructure so that people who are currently incarcerated and have the right to vote right now can vote. And then come 2022, we're going to go for the full full thing and make sure that people uh, who are currently incarcerated for whatever reason, people who are incarcerated for a felony can vote in the state of Maryland, right? So that's, that is our long-term goals of this. So there is work to be done um, in the 2021 session and there'll be work to do again in the 2022 session. And if they, for whatever reason, don't want to do this, we'll be coming back to them again and again until this issue is done. Absolutely. Uh, at this point, we want to um, just kind of get some final thoughts. I'll give you each one of you uh, like a minute just to give share a final thought and a little bit about the work and how people can continue to support the work that you're doing. Starting with you, Dr. Pippa Holloway, we know that you are a professor, you've written books, you're, you're doing some great and powerful work. But what is, the, what is the big thing that you want people to walk away with tonight after hearing this conversation? Um, for me, the answer is this is what's good for our country. It's what's good for our democracy. Um, it's good for people's voices to be heard. And if you believe in democracy, then you believe that people's voices should be heard at the ballot box. That's, that is our system. I will also note that uh, in, in response to this question about legislation, that there are also discussions about more federal legislation to protect voting rights, um, whether this might be a, a national uh, renewal of a Voting Rights Act, whether we might even talk about having a constitutional amendment to protect voting rights. So while work at the state level is important and fruitful right now, um, we might also be thinking about what kind of federal legislation would also help um, help them help these issues nationally. Absolutely. And Dr. Holloway, how can anyone pick up your book? Um, at their favorite online or on the ground retailer. Um, it, it, it's fairly widely available. I don't I don't want to um, call out any particular online retailers, but you name an online book re retailer and it's sold there. Would we appreciate great that. Christmas present. Uh, there it is. There it is. Dr. Pippa Holloway, author of Living in Infamy, Felly, Felon Disenfranchisement, and the History of American Citizenship. Dr. Holloway, we truly appreciate your time to be a part of tonight's conversation. Uh, Mr. Chris Wilson, give us your final <laughs> thought. What would you like for people to walk away from? Walk I, away I with, hope, excuse me. Yes. <laughs> I hope that uh, everyone who joined us tonight will uh, really understand the importance of um, democracy and, and going out and vote and, and hear, having their voice heard. I will also encourage folks to, to read my book to understand my plight and how I turn my life around while in prison through education. It's titled The Master Plan. Uh, it's sold everywhere books are sold and 
you can find it through my website, chriswilson.biz also. Um, and I just encourage everyone to just continue to stay engaged. And especially like with the new administration, we have an opportunity uh, to uh, really uh, move the ball down the field as far as criminal justice reform. There it is, there it is. Chris Wilson, serial social entrepreneur, storyteller, <laughs> artist, social justice advocate, <laughs> and author of The Master Plan. Chris, uh, we we are so proud of you, brother, and I know that you have um, you are really in a shining example of what reform, rehabilitation, and and, and service is about. So we look Thank forward you. to continue to support you, brother. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Miss Kiana, talk to us about life at life after release. Um, how can people get involved in the work that you're doing? More importantly, what do you want folks to walk away with from this conversation? I want folks to walk away from this conversation understanding that while voting um, is just one of the tools in our toolbox on our road to liberation and freedom, um, we have to understand that uh, we, no longer can we continue to um, not have the formerly incarcerated and incarcerated folks at the table, um, and no longer can we um, not talk about the issues um, that are um, deplenishing their quality of life. Uh, and we should be ashamed if we're not a part of the conversation um, because we need to be. And so that is what I have to say about that. Continue to find ways to defund the system and refund our communities, right? Um, and yeah, in ways that you can support Life After Release, you can go to our website, lifeafterrelease.org. Uh, you can um, court watch with us, right? You can um, uh, volunteer with us. You can provide financial support for uh, the work that we do by going to our website and donating if that's what you want to do. But thank you for if having that's me. what you know, that's what you should do. Hey, look, I, you know, there's different ways that people show up. There's different ways that people show up. I'm not going to force you to do it, but you, you, we also want you to volunteer your time because not everybody has, you know, as a formerly incarcerated woman who's running a formerly incarcerated organization who wants to bring in a base of formerly incarcerated folks, we understand that, you know, um, having money may not be something they can do um, to participate. So, you know, if you want to volunteer and be a part of the movement that way, we also welcome that too. Fantastic, Ms. Kiana Johnson, Life After Release, um, Executive Director of Life After Release. Ms. Amber Taylor, uh, we'll give you the final word. You are the producer of Free the Vote. You're the digital communication strategist for ACLU Maryland um, and one of the conveners for this great conversation. What do you want people to walk away with? Um, I want people to walk away knowing that elections are getting tighter and tighter, right? Um, then in 2016, here just here in Baltimore, the difference between Sheila Dixon and Mayor Pugh, um, the former Mayor Pugh running, I mean, winning the election was about 2,000 votes. And you know, with all those, you know, 18,000 of those people, a third of them come from Baltimore City, right? And so this has real direct um, effects on our political power, both here in Baltimore City, but also across the state. Um, if you're a politician, you should care about this issue because you should know that, that every vote counts and that getting as many votes for you is, uh, as possible matters. And let's, let's play like this. There are 18,000 votes that you could be lobbying and trying to get in, you know, here in the state of Maryland if you um, have the political courage to expand the franchise to um, all people who are currently incarcerated. Um, and what I would say on the last note is please go to Free the Vote. Um, sorry, freethevotemovie.com. Um, mm -hmm. you know, there you can donate to the ACLU. You can sign the petition urging elected officials to care about this issue. And you can also request a screening for this film, right? We, we, this is not like a one and done thing. We wanna take this uh, movie as, you know, across the state of Maryland to really uh, continue a conversation about this and, and build and continue to build upon the political will to get politicians and the general public on our side. Um, and looking forward to making history in the state of Maryland. There it is, Amber, we appreciate you. And that's why I'm rocking my shirt, Black Voters Matter. So there it is right there, because uh, it's very, very important. But Amber, we thank you so much for you and your team for, sitting, for, for putting together such an inspiring documentary. Yes, and may I also say, it was not just me. I, I may have been like that. But it's a team effort. Everyone at ACLU of Maryland did a wonderful job over the year and a half it took to get this wow. film together. So I'm really proud of it. And thank you for everybody who was a part of it. 
Fantastic. World premiere of Free the Vote. Make sure, folks, that y'all check that out at freethevotemovie.com. And um, make sure, even more importantly, make sure you request a personal screening. Take it to virtual churches, virtual mosques. Take it to your virtual community organizations. And let's get the conversation moving. With that being said, I want to thank all of our wonderful panelists tonight. I want to thank Dr. Pippa Holloway, Mr. Chris Wilson, Ms. Kiana Johnson, and certainly Ms. Amber Taylor for being a part of the conversation and making this happen. Again, we want to thank the ACLU of Maryland and, of course, the Reginald F. Lewis Museum for sponsoring this important conversation. And, of course, I want to thank all of you for inviting me to be a part of it and to be moderating this discussion. And you can tune into For the Culture every uh, for Monday through Friday from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. on 88.9 WEAA-FM. At this point, we thank you so much. Continue to support uh, those who don't have their uh, voices heard. Continue to do your part to make sure that our democracy works better for all. And let's continue to do this with the heart and the spirit that's going to keep us together. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. We look forward to having a different conversation very soon. Good evening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, make sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. To request a free screening of the Free the Vote documentary, go to freethevotemovie.com. There you can learn more about the history of felony disenfranchisement and take action to help change laws here in Maryland. This show was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time.